Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to turn toward the sixth chapter of St. John, verses 1 through 15. We'll stay with this chapter now for a few weeks. And uh, we do so because it is kind of the place in the New Testament where we are gradually led into the depth of the mystery of the continuing presence of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so it becomes, it becomes kind of central and crucial to building up our life of faith. And uh, we know that the Eucharist is called the source and the summit. And so, too, it is for our faith life and for our eternal life. So we begin the approach, though, picking up from where we left off in Mark's gospel last, of the disciples coming back from the mission that Jesus had sent them on and being tired but telling all the things that they had done. And uh, at the same time that uh, Jesus himself was not inactive during the time that the apostles were gone, because it says in John's Gospel, Jesus went off to the other side of Galilee, or of Tiberias, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd followed, impressed by the signs he gave by curing the sick. And uh, so this emphasis now shifts from the work of the apostles in Mark's Gospel to the work that Jesus was doing, and he obviously was curing the sick while they were away. And so the gospel says when he got to the other side and the large crowd followed him, Jesus climbed the hillside and sat down there with his disciples. And John makes us aware that it was shortly before the Jewish feast of Passover. The timing of this is is significant because now John's gospel is tying the events that are to follow to the days of the Passover of the Lord. So they're moving them into a Eucharistic context, and in so doing, they want us to see more deeply, or John wants us to see more deeply, into what the meaning of Jesus' miracles truly are. And so he says, Looking up, Jesus saw the crowds approaching and said to Philip, Where can we buy some bread for these people to eat? He only said this to test Philip, for he himself knew exactly what he was going to do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii would only buy enough to give them a small piece each. So then we have already mentioned before that the crowd is coming to follow him, and Jesus is aware of the fact that while this is a very large crowd that is coming after him, that uh, he now is going to use the, the presence of that crowd to make a to do something very significant, and so he brings up the he brings up the question of feeding them, and he says to Philip, you know, where are we going to? How are we going to get bread for these people to eat? And Philip says, we know we don't have enough money to even give them a little bit each. There's so many of them. But then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, There is a small boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what is that to so many? The barley loaves were the food of the poor. 
And so, once again, now, it is from the poor of Yahweh, the poor of, of God, who this who provide the foundations, the basis, the raw materials, we might say, of the miracles of Jesus. And Jesus then said to them, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass there, and as many as 5,000 men sat down. Jesus took the loaves, gave gave thanks, and gave them out to all who were sitting ready. He then did the same with the fish, giving out as much as was wanted. When they had eaten enough, he said to his disciples, pick up the pieces left over so that nothing gets wasted. So they picked them up and filled 12 hampers with scraps left over from the meal of five barley loaves. The people, seeing this sign that he had given, said, this really is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is kind of a problematic text for many, many people, especially people who have problems with the idea, uh, with the idea of miracles. But this is intended to be a miracle story in the gospel. This is not intended for us to find some kind of uh, natural explanation for it. That this is purely and simply Jesus performing a sign. The great signs in the book of, of John, the ones that point to Jesus as Messiah, find here now a great sign also. The word used for the bread in this gospel is the same word that Paul uses to describe the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians. And um, and so, and it also is the bread of the Last Supper in the Synoptic Gospels. There was more than one word for bread. The one they used is specifically, what well, in the scriptures at least, a Eucharistic word. The second thing is that happens is that this is visible for all people to see. People know the crowd was was an, an extemporaneous crowd that uh, they had been gathered around Jesus when the disciples came back and the people were following them, and they immediately set off to follow them where they went to the other side of the sea. They therefore did not have time to create, to bring provisions with them. And uh, they were simply following the master. They were simply following the disciples. And they were absorbed with the miraculous nature of what they were doing, especially of the healing of the sick. Um, And so they followed them over there and then found themselves in a very difficult situation that they had no food with them. And uh, they were a ways away, as had already said, that Jesus had taken them, the disciples, away to a deserted place. So that the situation is now set up for Jesus to perform this miracle. And, um, And so he does. He, uh, <clears throat> first of all, in John's gospel, establishes the fact that this is all there was for them to eat. There was nothing more. And then we find Andrew emerge from the usual anonymity of the apostles and brings to the Lord the small boy with the five barley loaves and two fish. And then <clears throat> Jesus, knowing exactly what he's going to do, has them all sit down in groupings and begins the process of giving them sufficient food for their journey. Obviously, this is a prefiguration of the Eucharist. This is what John intends it to be. And this is what Jesus intends it to be in John's Gospel, that I am going to show you that from so little, so much can be received. 
And, and I think that um, this idea that the Eucharist is basically the abundance of the person of Jesus, from this one person, look at what can be received by the multitude, not just the 5,000 in this gospel, but the multitudes through the ages. For it is in the breaking and the blessing of the bread that all humanity has the capacity to be fed with the bread of life, with the body and the blood of the Lord, being joined to the Savior, being joined to the Redeemer, being joined to the Son of the living God, that can then take us further and deeper into the kingdom of heaven. I know that I have quoted St. Elizabeth of the Trinity before, but certainly in every case that we run across the Eucharistic text, her reflection on it is of value to us. And that reflection is, is it not paradise already? when we are joined to, the, to Christ in his flesh and blood. And that is what this is prefiguring. He does this then, and he wants to show not only the, the, the adequacy and the sufficiency of Jesus for us, but he wants us to see very clearly also the abundance, the superabundance of what he offers to us. He is not stingy in the gift of himself. He gives it universally throughout the ages to anyone who will receive it. He does not exclude anyone intentionally. He gives it to all who will come, all who are open, all who desire to receive from him in, in the presence of himself, the living bread of life. And so when they began to pick up the scraps that are left over from the five barley loaves and the two fish, when they began to do that, it is then that uh, they began to realize and began to see the tremendous abundance of what he has done for them and given to them. Then it says, people seeing the sign that he had given. In other words, John makes it very clear that people are aware that this is a miraculous sign, that he has brought something out of nothing. And in that sense, of course, represents the act of creation, which brought the creation out of nothing through the word. And Jesus is the word. And so they said, this is really the prophet who is to come into the world. And this is an important statement because we've talked often about Jesus kind of silencing his disciples sometimes when he does something phenomenal, something great. Um, and then it's always a question of, well, why does he do that? Why doesn't he want people to know what he's got, what he does, and so forth? But the fact is that anything that smacks of the messianic sign in the Gospels has a two-edged sword, both good and bad. In one sense, yes, it reveals and points to Jesus as Messiah and is the opportunity for faith and discipleship. On the other hand, the word itself triggers expectations on the part of the crowds and the part of the peoples. We can't say often enough that not all Jews expected a Messiah. But those that did expect the Messiah had very definitive views of what that Messiah was going to be like. And that um, picking through the traditions of Israel and looking at the story of the history of Israel, most of their expectations, most of their expectations centered around in many, many ways the return of the, uh, of the reign of David. And the, the, great, the great king, the great general, the great friend of the Lord, um, despite his sinfulness in David's case, he remained close to the Lord and a friend to the Lord until his death. 
And, uh, and so that's kind of the image, that's kind of the model they had in their mind. There was, of course, in the community of the Essenes in Qumran, kind of a dual sense of the Messiah, a Davidic king, but also a great high priest. And uh, they spoke elusively then of, um, of a past and former high priest, whom they call the teacher of righteousness, who was destroyed by the people, killed by the people. But it's all very unclear in their writings who that is, when that would have occurred, and if they were looking for that person to return again or not. But the fact is, that the messianic expectations of Israel were all over the place, but very few of them would conform to the actual presence of Jesus Christ, that the presence of, of the man who was singular and alone in many ways, um, who gathered around him a few disciples who performed miracles, but it was kind of a model of insight and depth into the human nature, um, filled with compassion, but also filled with anger at the what the devil, what evil had done to the creation that came to being through him, how it had distorted and disfigured it. Usually in the translations where it says he looks upon someone who is deformed or sick or whatever and, and experiences anger, since that made no sense to the copyists of the Middle Ages and so forth, it was often they changed the word from anger to compassion or to pity. Um, sometimes it says that, but sometimes it does not say that. And so Jesus then is this unique individual, this unique person. And you know, one of the fascinating things about that is he becomes the Messiah. He becomes the Messiah of every man. He becomes the Messiah of all the people, not just the greats. He has not come to flaunt his power and his prestige and his position, any of that. But he moves more deeply into the heart of the common person. And this is not to be in some way to begin a discussion of class structures in societies or anything like that. Sometimes very wealthy and powerful people are among the common folk as well. But it is that he is not exclusive. He is not someone who is not available, or, you know, you're too poor to, for the Lord God to come into your life, or you're too rich for the Lord God to come into your life. None of that matters to him. He comes into the heart of every person that is open to him. And if he had come as some kind of super character, super figure, um, then he would have in many sense, once again, not been companion but been somehow or other a distant power. In our society, of course, which is obsessed with celebrity, he would, he would certainly have been a great celebrity of some kind. And instead of people coming to know him, and instead of people coming close to him, knowing to love him, to care for him, to trust him, and so forth, um, faith would have become kind of a group of fans. And if there's anything that faith is not, it's a group of fans of Jesus. It is a group instead of friends of Jesus. And there is a huge difference because in the, in the fan of Jesus, in the fan of a person, you don't ever really know who they are. 
and a friend, you certainly do begin to discover the depths of the other person. You begin to see into them. You begin to appreciate the, the, the subtle pieces and parts of their own personalities. It's a journey, a voyage of discovery. Friendship is love, is a journey of, of discovery. Sometimes the discovery is wonderful and sometimes it's less than wonderful. But it is a discovery of the whole of the person. And it takes years and years and years for the whole of the person to become known to us and us to them. So that this idea of Jesus not being a spectacular Messiah, not being the fulfillment of the hopes and the dreams of the people of Israel, is fundamental to the idea of the relationship that people can have with Jesus Christ. They are not his fans. They are not swarming to him as a celebrity in faith. We're going to see that he's aware that that's going to happen now. But, uh, but that's his problem with, uh, with the messianic signs and with the testimony of the disciples to who he is. Because the very word, the very word triggers false expectations. And you and I both know that false expectation, expectations usually end in anger, disappointment, and dislike. And that's the thing that Jesus wanted to protect the people from, from being caught up in their false expectations and in so doing to therefore block the passageways of companionship with the Lord that is open to those who receive him in sacrament and those who receive him in word and those who experience him in the goodness of their own lives and in the good things in their own lives. So these are these. this is a significant thing that's going on. How does Jesus begin to reveal the truth of who he is without feeding the misconceptions of the people? He's never able to solve that completely because people are people and they are going to project whatever they want to project. But here, of course, now, um, he does not cease signs because of misinterpretation, but he tries to protect the people from misinterpreting them. And one of the things now that has happened in this miracle of the loaves and the fishes where Jesus prefigures the Eucharist, where Jesus proves not only the power of God, but the abundance of his care, of his goodness and his love. And so when the people see this sign, what do they do immediately? They began to say, oh, this is who we have been expecting. They say, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world. This must be the Messiah, they're saying. But what does Jesus see in that? But Jesus, who could see they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, escaped back to the hills by himself. So that he, he moved then um, stealthily through the crowd and disappeared into the hills because he knew that they were, although this is not who he was, they were going to try and enforce their expectations upon him. He knew that that was in the making and he knew that when he did something as dramatic as this that it would trigger all of that. But he had to do that to prepare us then for what is coming now through the rest of the sixth chapter of John. For this is the Eucharistic chapter of John, and it is dramatic. And so here now, in by fleeing, because they were going to take him and force him to make him king, it's not that he couldn't you know, stop that if he wanted to. It's that he wanted to protect them from investing too heavily 
and their false expectations of him. And that this is a great opportunity for them to say, to see, as he flees them, that this is not what he's all about. This is a great lesson. Him leaving them with this desire that they are unable to fulfill is him really saving them from from the false expectations which they have imposed upon him, and therefore something which would have blinded them to the deeper realities and uh, the deeper truth of who he was and why he was there and what he intended to do for them. There was no way that the people had the ability to understand this at the time, and so he had to protect them from themselves. Um, there's no way that if they were to come and take him by force and make him a king, there's no way they could have done that if he didn't want them to do that. But the fact of the matter is they had to see by his escaping them and leaving them that he was rejecting that notion of his identity. So this is a very important passage in the, in the, in the Gospels where Jesus publicly not just says but demonstrates the, uh, the false expectations the false messianic expectations of the many people of Israel. When we turn this around and we look to ourselves in our modern age and our contemporary age, and we say to ourselves, who is this Lord Jesus? What is he? Who is he? What does he do for us? What does he do to us? We can come back to a gospel like this. I'm Obviously, there's many, many places in the scriptures where we can do this. But this is a great opportunity to do this. Because, you know, we, like the people of Israel, have our own expectations of who Jesus is supposed to be. We have our own expectations as to what it means for us to follow and be disciples of Christ. And we place phenomenal expectations on him, just like the people of Israel did. And I think an interesting thing is certainly, certainly, I suppose every age says this, but certainly we live in a particularly, in a particularly troubled world. And uh, we seem to have moved back away from the brink of self-destruction through, through atomic energy and atomic weaponry and so forth. Perhaps we haven't, but we seem to have. And it certainly is not so much on our minds as it was maybe 50, 60 years ago. <laughs> but at the same time, we're, we're, we're faced with, with a, a very difficult situation in the world and a very difficult situation in the church. And we have all sorts of people saying, why doesn't the Lord do something? Why doesn't the Lord come in majesty and smite the evil ones? Why doesn't the Lord come in grandeur and in glory and overcome the powers of evil? Why didn't he overthrow the Third Reich? Why didn't he overthrow the Soviet um, Politburo? Why didn't he? Why doesn't he rescue the church from the oppression of China and so forth? Why doesn't he do this? Just as the early Hebrews were saying, if he is the Messiah, why are the Romans still here? If he is the Messiah, why is there injustice in the world? If he is the Messiah, why are there the poor, the lame, the blind, and so forth? If he were truly the Messiah, he would be able to wipe all of this away and give us kind of a utopia, kind of a paradise on earth. And uh, and don't we do the same thing? 
And uh, don't we do the same thing over and over again, that why doesn't the Lord take care of things? Why doesn't he do this? And the fact of the matter is, is because that is never who he has been for us until the second coming, that he has always been for us, the, the, the friend, the teacher, the companion, the one who is much more interested in what goes on inside of our lives than what goes on in the world around us. It's not that he's not concerned, and certainly we know that he sent his mother with messages of how maybe to help ourselves to avoid some of the evil that goes on in the world. One thing that's that's pretty amazing, you know, is is her warnings about um, the ideology from Russia pervading the world. Well, in fact, it looks like it has, at least in the Western world. And that which was unthinkable even 25 years ago is now kind of normative within the society. And we say to ourselves, what are we to do with all this? Why does the, why did the Lord let this happen? Why doesn't the Lord come and do something about it? And in so doing, we join the crowd in the gospel today that the people seeing the signs he has given said, this is really the prophet who has come into the world. And so Jesus, who understands what they're looking for, something they shouldn't find in him, um, understands then that he has to escape, that he has to remove himself from them in order that they don't sink into their own delusion and into their own error. And so too, does this go on throughout the ages? Is Are there cases certainly where Jesus continues to heal? Certainly there are. Are there ages where he continues to speak to his people? There certainly are. Uh, we think back to the, the days of Margaret Mary Alacoque and Claude Colombier and the revelation of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which is the revelation of the direct antithesis of the end of this gospel of people, what, what people wanted to do to him at the end of this gospel. He is reminding us that he is the God, the deep inside of the human person, the God who is the source and the power of love, the God who is the one then who presents himself and gives himself to us in love, companionship, and hope with the promises of all we hope for to come somehow or other in an unknown way into the future when we enter into the kingdom of the Lord. And if St. Elizabeth of the Trinity is correct, then if we are faithful to the Eucharist and that faithful, we begin to have those kinds of insights of eternity, those ideas of the inner coherence <clears throat> of our own lives, the inner capacity to receive and to give the love which comes to us from the Lord. We receive all of that and therefore move more, more steadily into the kingdom of God, into paradise, where we realize that what lies at the very depth of the human person from creation itself is the presence of the living God, and that we must discover, as St. Teresa of Avila says, in the interior castle in our souls, that presence and that goodness which explains to us and gives to us the true fruits of the coming of the Messiah to his people. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.